0: Well, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to get into the Lord's Word. So why don't you guys open up to Isaiah, and we're going to be in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61. And I'm titling this Isaiah 60 through 62, uh, part two, because 61 is at the center of 60 and 62. You might think, well, Hans, that's not, you don't need, you know, a PhD to understand that. Uh, I do get that, but I want to keep in mind that the three of them are very much connected, Now, as it usually is about this time of year, how many of you feel like life is a bit chaotic? Raise your hands. Yeah? Okay. You're getting back into school, trying to set up the uh, structure for the year. Um, We try and do that every year, and it seems like we get it done about the time school ends and you start into summer. Does anybody else feel that way? Um, And then you've got here at church, all our events kind of restart, small groups, uh, youth groups, they all blur together into one. Life is chaotic. But one of the things I love about our church and and the direction we have is that we um, continue to go through the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I want to kind of clarify for us, because life is a bit chaotic, what we've been learning. We've covered 60 plus chapters of Isaiah, and over and over we've seen themes arise over and over again, and so I took a stab at a uninspired, probably very errant statement that summarizes some of those things we've learned. And so here it is. The Lord is at war against all of the parties involved in the kingdom of darkness in an effort to rescue his creation and his people for his glory. The Messiah, Jesus, is his active agent within this war to atone for the sin that separated us from the Lord. And by the Lord, I mean Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Now, the next part of this, go ahead and go to the next one there. Oh, there we go. Jesus has inaugurated this kingdom of holiness, righteousness, and justice through his spiritual offspring, the church. We continue the battle as his image bearers until he returns to finalize his victorious reign on this earth by judging the living and the dead. Now, I know this is not inspired, nor is it all encompassing. Uh, Anybody who's more intelligent than me, which is probably a whole lot of people, could probably come up with a better statement. Um, But this is what we kind of have come across as we've looked at 60-plus chapters of Isaiah. And for some of you, this may be totally new right? You may have uh, gotten a a kernel of truth about Christianity, but this idea and this theology is new. For some of you, it's a transition. It's it's slightly different than what you've heard before when talking about the subject of quote-unquote prophecy, okay? Now, one of the reasons for this, whether you have noticed it or not, is because all of us, we are constantly taught. You guys realize that? What you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're reading, it is teaching you That's why reading the Word is so important, because the rest of the time you're being taught by what? Netflix, Facebook, Instagram, right? And everything else around you. And so you've been taught with a certain mentality of how to read Scripture. And every pastor wants to state that they read the Bible literally and without any lenses. But the bottom line is we're all human, and that's kind of impossible, and so the job of a good pastor is to try and remove as many of those theological lenses as possible and just read the word for what it is. And so the first thing I want to do today in order to help us understand chapter 61 is I want to introduce us to this idea of theological lenses, okay? The questions come up a lot recently, even in our leadership meetings, we've had some awesome discussions about why is it that really smart, godly, good people have differing opinions on the same subject, right? Right? Well, it's because of theological lenses. We can read the same words, but we have these lenses as if they're glasses in front of us that alter what we're doing because it's how we've been taught how to read the Word. And as we look at this, I think what we're going to see is that these lenses influence us in how we view eternity. And as we talked about last week, we're going to cover again this idea that what we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. So I have these lenses, I look at the Word, I get a view of what eternity future is like, and that impacts the way that I live each and every day. Now, I'm going to get a little bit academic here on you, but just go with me, because this is very important to understand. And whether you know it or not, you've been taught some of this before. When we break it down, there are really three primary orthodox views of eternity future, right? Right? Now you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, are we stepping into, you know, inquirer land, kind of like what's going to happen in the crystal ball? No. When you look at the Bible, it talks about the future. And there are three primary orthodox views that are accepted by all of Christendom. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to share with you what those are. Now all of these lenses, all of these views, are trying to answer questions about really hard scripture let's take a look at the primary one that is a tough scripture that these lenses try and answer. This is in Revelation, and it's Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Okay? Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And it's talking about something called the millennium. And millennium is just a word that means thousand years. Okay? Here's what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, now we read this and if any of you are like me, you try and picture it in your head. So you got this dragon fighting against this angel and he's got chains and then there's a pit. How many of you are confused when you read this kind of stuff? Yeah, right? And that is why very bright people for 2,000 years have gone, I don't know, Maybe it's literal, and there's a big old dragon and a chain, and maybe it's symbolic. I don't know, right? And so today we're not going to answer which one it is. What we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the differing views, and you're thinking, why does this impact Isaiah 61? But we'll get there, okay? Let's talk about it first in terms of timeline, just so you can understand the various views. First, and don't worry about writing these down, you can go online and get them later this week, they'll be up there with the teaching, just try and take it all in here. The first thing that's trying to decipher Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 or 1 through 10 is what's called pre-millennial lens. Now, what does pre mean? Before. There you go. And what does millennium mean? (laughs) You guys are scholars. This is awesome. Okay, so before the thousand years. So, if you were looking at the timeline, the way we Westerners think, you got Jesus and Pentecost back there, okay? you got the church age that we live in right now. At some point in the future, Jesus is going to come back in his second coming. And in premillennial view, it is pre, which means? Before the millennium, which means? There you go. Jesus comes back before the thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, a bunch of stuff happens and it moves into his eternal reign. This is pre-millennial, okay? Everybody got that? Pre means before, a thousand years. This is a tough one. Post, what does that mean? Hey, okay, see, you guys got this. So it's now after the millennial kingdom. So Jesus and Pentecost happened, we're in the church age, and post-millennial people view that the church, the church age will move into in kind of this this fashion where we don't even really see it start to happen into the millennial kingdom. In other words, the church will bring about social change and justice to such a level that they will bring about the reign of Christ and it will get better and better and better and better to a point where, oh man, now he's ready to come back and reign because his reign is already established. So that's why it's post, after millennial, the thousand years. Okay? Now, here's the third one. Ah, millennial. Now, for those of you who know your roots, ah means no, (laughs) okay? Without. So, without a millennium. uh, millennium. So, this is where we're in the church age, and Jesus is just going to come back, and he's going to reign, and it's all going to be one big event, okay? Everybody clear on those three different views? Yeah? Okay. Now, trust me, there's a ton more than that, And there's sub-views within each of these, but I'm trying to keep it really simple for you today. You're thinking, Hans, simple? That's not your style. (laughs) But I'm trying here, okay? So let's take these and let's think through just the basics of how our view of this eternal mindset would impact the way we live, okay? Now, some of you might get frustrated with me on this because I'm taking the far end of the spectrum. I'm taking the person that is diehard loyal to each view, and I'm not even going to answer for you yet what we as a church teach because I want to leave you in suspense. Um, But here's the first one, okay? The first one is the pre-millennial kingdom, okay? So, if you're pre-millennial, here's what the definition of it is, that Christ's return begins the kingdom. He has to be back for it to even begin. So, honestly, there's really no point in doing any kind of kingdom work in this view because Jesus is going to come back and start it anyway, and why put all the effort into it if he's going to start it, okay? Now, I'm building a straw man here, and I'm going all the way to the end of the spectrum, but that's kind of the truth. And so the focus then becomes not doing any work, but looking for Christ's return to be ready. Is he here yet? Is he here yet? We look in the news to see if there's earthquakes and rumors of wars, and we look for certain things to fit pegs into certain holes, and that's what we spend all our time on. You have raptureready.org bookmarked, right? Because you want to see the rapture index to see when he's coming back, all right? The application for this is pay attention to events, and you want to live as a kind of Paul Revere with the gospel, running as fast as you can to as many people as possible, saying, Christ is coming. The British are coming. You get the Paul Revere reference? Okay. Now, that's not meant to be bad. That's a good thing, because people need to know that. But the mentality is, is I don't care if I have a relationship with them. I don't care if there's any work done. I don't care if there's any follow-up done. I don't care if they're made as disciples. we got to tell as many people as possible that Jesus is coming, otherwise they might get left behind, thus the book series. You see how it affects how you live? Now, there are really smart supporters of this view, A ton of early church leaders. Justin Martyr, uh, Irenaeus, I can never say his name, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, C.I. Schofield from the uh, uh, 19th century, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, who I love and, and, and honor very much, okay? These are all really bright, godly people who believe in this, okay? Well, let's take a look at post millennial This is where Christ's return is is after the kingdom is already kind of established. And so the focus here is we can't wait and look for Jesus. There's too much work to be done. He's not going to come back until we get the kingdom in place. So we need to do social justice to bring in the kingdom. Now, some of you are already going, well, I tend towards that one. And some of you are going, well, I tend towards that one. But is it because of biblical backing or because that's how you're innately built? And so the application is, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Stop looking in the clouds, get to work. Now, there are really amazing supporters of this view. All of the Puritans were post-millennials. Christian abolitionists that ended slavery in this country hold this view. That's why they did the work they did. And we should be thankful for that, right? Amen? Amen. Charles Finney, an amazing preacher, the preacher that basically started the quote-unquote altar call, uh, he called it the anxious bench where you would have one open bench and people would have to come forward and be anxious about being saved, right? Very bright people. These are all amazing people of God we should be looking to. How about all millennial? The definition here is there's no millennium. All events happen at the end of the church age anyway, so why worry about it? And so the focus is being the church and awaiting Christ. But the application here is that it can lead to an internal focus and apathy regarding the last things. And so Slowly but surely, nobody talks about eternity future. Now, the supporters of this are amazing people of God. Augustine, the medieval church, the Catholic church. This is the majority view of Christians in the world. Not the evangelical view, but the majority view of Christians in the world. Now, guys, can we agree that as we look at the supporters of all these views, these are intelligent, godly, spirit-driven people? Yes or no? Yes. Can we also agree that most likely they all made mistakes? Yes. Yes. So why would we align with one of them just because they support our view? We should look at all of them in my estimation. And why wouldn't we live with the application of all three? You see, some of you may see my definition of amillennial and you you might think, well, uh, mission is that. It's a focus on the church. Well, that's not actually what I teach. Uh, you, you might think, well, we're post-millennial because, man, all the work we try and do to bring about social justice, this has got to be how mission is. Well, actually, that's not what I teach either. What I teach is premillennial. and that we need to be looking for Christ's return. But in my estimation, as I read the word, that doesn't negate the need to do the work of Christ and bringing about justice, and it doesn't negate a focus on being the body of Christ. In my estimation, we need to have a focus on Christ's return while acting within his kingdom reign to bring about justice and doing so united as the body of Christ. To give too much focus to anyone may not lead for you to an apathy, but it will for people that you disciple. See, the leaders of these views never ever are the ones that end up in apathy. It's always the followers. Calvin and Arminius did not argue. In fact, they didn't really even live. They, they kind of lived sort of the same time, but they, they didn't argue. It was all their followers who were like, are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? They probably would have shook hands and walked together in church. And so when we teach people, well, we're pre-millennial. It's about the rapture. They look up and they go, all those people doing social justice are wasting their time. And when we focus on social justice, they go, what about all these looky-loos over here standing looking for Jesus Christ, not doing any work? And all of a sudden, what happens to the church? Does it stand united? It fractures because of a secondary issue. And the outside world looks in and goes, you guys got no power. You say you're united by the Spirit, but secondary issues are what's dividing you? That's not going to draw them. And the reality, if we're honest with ourselves, is that the reason we allow secondary issues to fracture us is because most often they're not ha- they don't have anything to do with Scripture. They have to do with our political inclination, our personalities, and our desires. It has to do with our own personal worldview. And we take that lens and we place it on Scripture. But it seems to me that in all three of these Scriptures, or all three of these views, excuse me, here's what we know for sure. Can we agree with all three that Jesus Christ will return to reign? Yes, this is the orthodox view. Anybody that doesn't believe this is outside of orthodoxy. Secondly, here's what we believe. That when he returns to reign, love, justice, holiness, and righteousness will characterize his kingdom and its citizens. So the application then becomes, uh, do we view him and treat him as our king right now? Do we live our lives that way? And do we live our lives in a way where we're waiting for his coming at any given moment? And if this is how we're going to live eternally, love, justice, holiness, and righteousness, and this is what will characterize us as citizens of his kingdom in the future, why would we not be practicing it now? That comes from all three. And so it seems to me that to live truly biblically, we must, re- we must hear the fullness of all the biblical narrative rather than focusing on one view. And this is where I'm going with all of this in connection to chapters 61 and 62. Last week, we talked about this idea of the future. And we talked about the idea of the city of Zion and how it was a monument to the work of Christ and it was a nickname for the fullness of his kingdom. And we talked about this in depth, that what we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. We looked at the New Jerusalem or Zion and we started to compare it to the church. And we saw that in 60 and 62, the picture of what his fullness of his kingdom will look like bears a really striking resemblance to what the call to the church is right now. Not in its fullness because we're still broken and, and still moved by sin in some capacities, but we're also regenerate and moving towards the kingdom. And so it seems to me that there is a continuous progression in God's plan and purpose. And if we look at 60 and 62, in the structure of the writing, what happens? It draws our eyes to the center and it points us to 61. And at the center of this kingdom is this person that will be described in 61, the Messiah, the anointed one. So to truly view God's eternal plan and let it it impact our lives today, we have to keep focused on Jesus. We must look to him, to his work of paying the penalty for our sins on the cross that reconciles us to God and to one another so that division does not creep up in the church, especially on secondary matters. We must keep our eyes on his character, that he desires to bring about justice and mercy and love so that we can do the same thing in reflecting him. We must look to his authority and his soon return and his judgment to respond with honor towards him. And we must look to his covenant love for each and every one of us. He desires each of us to be in relationship with him. And if we do this accurately, if we stop putting our own lenses in in place over scripture, I firmly believe it will impact how we individually live life and it will firmly impact our unity as a church it will impact how we live today. So now having laid down the longest introduction in the history of the church, I'm gonna take you through some background context. So this is the context of Isaiah 61. This is introduction part B. And we're gonna to go to Luke 4. We're gonna to go to Luke 4 and we're gonna let Jesus be our commentator on what Isaiah 61 is gonna be all about. Okay, so go to Luke 4 starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This comes directly from the beginning of Isaiah 61 and also has pieces of Isaiah 58, the fast that the Lord has chosen this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words uh, that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, imagine with me what that moment was like. A typical synagogue service where there was singing of psalms, reciting of the great Shema. If the leader of the psalms was as charismatic as Shane, I'm sure there was commentary in the midst of it right? A reading from the law, and then everyone turns to see Jesus stand to read from the prophets. It was like any other Sunday. It would be as if Ben Rabishki stood up right now, grabbed the Bible, and said, I am that I am. <laughs> Deacons, please get the straitjackets, right? <laughs> and not only that, I've only known Ben for, what, four years? They knew Jesus from childhood, Isn't this the adopted son of Joseph, the fatherless child of Mary, the one that skinned his knee and I saw crying when he was two? But yet he's asked to read from Isaiah 61. And what does he say as commentary on this scripture? He says, today, this has been fulfilled. In other words, I am the Messiah and my kingdom has now begun. He's claiming to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9. God with us, Emmanuel from Isaiah 7. Not this will happen in the future, but today, can you imagine the response? Crickets. But for those of us outside of the situation, with access to the full story, we see it a bit differently. Many of you have seen movies where you're going along in the midst of the movie and plot piece by plot piece, you're like, man, this is disjointed and where are they going with this? And then at the end of the movie, In the last few minutes, you guys have seen movies like this. Some statement is made or some scene happens where all of a sudden, in perfect cinematographic uh, 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 splendor, the producer, the director, runs you back through the whole movie in snippets. And all of a sudden, it all becomes clear. You guys seen movies like that? That's a good movie, right? Those of us standing outside this situation, we look at this and, and we realize that just as with those movies, but to a greater degree, we're left in awe, Undone at this prospect that all along, the one thing that was missing, the puzzle piece that we needed to see the whole plot, has now been put in place. This verse for us, this section of verses, is for us to understand all of Scripture and the last things with regard to the kingdom of Christ. I want you to just look at the headings of your Bible And I want you to see that the surrounding context of this section of Scripture in the book of Luke shows us the same thing as our original summary statement. Let me read it to you again. The Lord, Yahweh, is at war against all of the parties involved in the kingdom of darkness in an effort to rescue his creation and his people for his glory. The Messiah, Jesus, is his active agent within this war to atone for the sin that separated us from Yahweh, the Lord. And Jesus has inaugurated this kingdom of holiness, righteousness, and justice through his spiritual offspring, the church. We continue the battle as his image bearers until he returns to finalize his victorious reign on this earth by judging the living and the dead. If we look at Luke chapter 4, what we see directly before it in Luke 3 is that Jesus fits the lineage of the Messiah to come. And what is the first thing that he does after this? He goes into the desert to fight in warfare against the enemy, the prince of darkness. Then he comes to Nazareth and begins his ministry and stands up and says, I am the Messiah. And he immediately goes out and starts practicing kingdom work, healing a man with an unclean demon, practicing justice and healing the sick, and at the same time fighting off the demonic. Followed by that is Jesus healing many, practicing justice and righteousness and caring for the oppressed and the sick. And then he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. And what does he preach in the synagogue? I must preach the good news, the gospel of what? The kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And then what does he do? Chapter 5, he calls his first disciples. He establishes the first church. People trained in his ways to practice kingdom work in his image and reflection to the world around him. By Jesus' actions and words, he is establishing himself as the Messiah of Isaiah, and specifically the speaker of Isaiah 61. And to a group of people like the Hebrews, who had been waiting with bated breath for generations See, they didn't teach their kids about the Easter Bunny and about Santa Claus and about whatever else, the tooth fairy. They taught about the Messiah who would come and bring them salvation and victory. To that group of people, this was mind blowing. Here is this man standing amongst them saying, The kingdom has begun. Write this down. Here's my first main point The kingdom of Isaiah has been inaugurated. And at its center is the anointed one of God. Anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach or Messiah. In Greek, it is Christos or Christ. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Let's turn back to Isaiah 61 and finally get into our text for today. Now the reason that I believe that this is so important, guys, is I don't believe that many of us actually live as if we're part of a kingdom. We live as consumers that go to church to get our spiritual hit, make ourselves feel good, and then we go somewhere else when we need a new hit. If we actually lived as the kingdom of God on this earth, what would happen? Let's take a look at 61, verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because Yahweh, the Lord, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's pause there in the midst of verse 2. There is so much that we could focus on here, but let me give you a general idea of what is happening. This anointed one, the Messiah, or the Christ in Greek, is the one that stands between the kingdom that was and the kingdom that will be. Remember that Israel, in a sense, was a kingdom, and it was supposed to be under the power of God, just as we are to be a kingdom under the power of God. But they were regulated in a way where it was just follow the law by white-knuckled attempt. And so everything that they were given in the Torah in the law, they had to follow in order to properly reflect the righteousness, justice, and holiness of Yahweh. By their righteousness, they were supposed to show who God was. One such example of this is this idea of practicing the year of the Lord's favor. Every theologian agrees that what he was talking about here is this idea called the year of jubilee, Now, I wrote down a couple of Bible verses here for you to go and study on your own this week. We're not going to go into those in detail because they give great detail around the year of the Jubilee. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because to understand what Jesus is talking about, you need to understand it, okay? The calendar system of the Hebrews was based on Sabbath days, Sabbath years, and an eventual Jubilee year. Every seven days, you had a Sabbath day. For them, that was Saturday, or Friday night into Saturday night because they operate in a different cycle. It's very confusing. Every seven years, they had a Sabbath year in which they were supposed to let the land rest and pull back from all their labor. And this was intended to do a few things. Just as with the Sabbath day, it was to state to the world around them, we trust God and he is our priority. Secondly, it was to give them rest and focus on God. Third, it was to show that they're a bit crazy because who on earth stops farming their fields? Right, Matt Califf? Who stops farming your fields every seven years? Matt's a farmer. That's why I did that if you didn't know. You're all like, why are you calling him out right now? But the reason was they could then say to the world, we trust that God will provide and we are setting up our lives in a way that we are saving up for that seventh year and not just spending it all at once. In fact, the Sabbath year system was the exact opposite of capitalism. Spend day to day, build your own kingdom, right? That's not the view of the Bible. Now, every 50th year, so seven sevens would pass, 49, and then the 50th year, you'd have this year of jubilee. Now, in the Sabbath years and in the year of jubilee, here's what would occur. You'd have to let all of your slaves go free meaning the people who were indebted to you, in other words, they didn't pay off their credit card bill to you, you had to let them go and forgive their debt. All debts were forgiven. Land that had been repossessed was given back to its original tribe, and there was an evening out of the social structure to put everyone back on equal footing. Our version of this today would be if Capital One, Bank of America, Chase Manhattan all said one day, All debt is forgiven. Now you're all laughing because you know what would occur. What would occur? We'd all go spend it again, rack up debt like crazy, and our economy would crash because our economy is based on the opposite of biblical principles. And the way we spend money is based on the opposite of biblical principles. But this jubilee year was a year where everyone would be forgiven in order to bring about true justice, the equalizing of people, so that the fullness of what we've been studying, tzedekava mishpat, righteousness and justice, would take effect. And this would have required great faith and great forward stewardship. Now, Scripture is very clear, and again, I don't have time to break into this today, but you can go study it yourself, that the primary reason that God sent the Jews into exile was because they didn't do this. They were too busy making their money. Well, I can't, I can't take a day off. I have to go into work on Sunday, pastor. I mean, you know, the bills aren't going to get paid if I don't show up at church. Or they were doing their own thing. I'm just tired. I need to rest. The Lord understands if I need to rest on his day. Well, I want to go, go skateboarding. I want to go four-wheeling. The Lord understands, you know. Everything's free and gracious in Jesus. But what we're doing when we do that, folks, is we're setting ourselves up as the priority, ourselves as God, ourselves as the arbiter of truth. We're practicing the exact same sin that the Jews did, which was what sent them into exile. And they refused to image the heart of God. you know what, uh, non-believers, there's a great study that was done years ago. Uh, there's a guy who does church growth studies, and he did a big study of non-believers. You know what the number one thing uh, that non-believers think shows the believer is actually a believer? Number one thing. They attend church on Sunday. They could care less about anything else. But if you're going to your workplace and saying, I'm a Christian, but you're blitzing out on church all the time, non-believers are looking at you going, you don't believe what you actually say you believe. If you did, you'd set aside one day in seven to actually show it. This was the same problem that was going on in Israel. And so they were sent into exile, but now Christ has come, and he is motivated by the Spirit to do what? Well, if you look at verses 1 and 2, he's doing the very things that the Israelites wouldn't practice because of their own selfishness. He, in his very activity and word, was fulfilling the purpose of the year of the Jubilee. He was showing God's heart of justice And by quoting this, he's stating that he is the one that will lead the charge in establishing that kingdom. And those that are truly his, as we'll see, will follow in his footsteps. Knowing that we won't be perfect, but giving our everything to try and reflect the same things, to bring about righteousness and justice in the midst of the non-believing nations. But notice that this plan of action, this bringing of atonement and justice, it doesn't stop with him. Look at the second half of verse 2. After the day of the favor uh, the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, that they shall build up the ancient ruins, that they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of many generations. The good news that the Messiah is proclaiming in both action and word is bringing comfort instead of mourning to all those that are his. Instead of covering our heads in ashes, which was an activity of mourning, we are to be celebrating as the bride of Christ by stepping into covenant with him symbolized here by the wedding headdress and the oil of gladness. We've been given an outward life of praise over being fearful and faint-hearted. And this is all speaking of his call to those that follow him, to us, to step into covenant with him and his people. And in that covenant stability, we are established as strong oaks rooted in the work of the Messiah. To the pagan nations, the oak trees were the places where you'd go to practice pagan worship to false gods. And God says, I've taken you from that. I've uprooted you. I've brought you over here and I've replanted you. And now you're firmly founded in my work. And notice that the work we will be doing as his reflection is his work. Verse four there is just like in chapter 58 talking about the the fast that the Lord chooses. We will build up the ancient ruins, raise the former devastations, repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. What we see here is this. You can write this down. The covenant citizens of the kingdom take part in the work of the anointed one of God. The covenant citizens of the kingdom take part in the work of the anointed one of God. The reason that we teach as a church the premillennial view the majority of the time is that, guys, honestly, and this is, I say this out of all humility, it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means this is where we've landed. I have, I have tried so many different ways to look at Scripture and see the various um, views, and there are certain verses I just can't get past that always pull me back to what's called a premillennial view of the future. But I have to admit to you, as part of the party of people who view uh, a premillennial future waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for the rapture of the church, I have to tell you what makes me so angry about our own group. We don't do work. The majority of us as evangelicals who practice the premillennial view, we shirk off doing justice because we think, "Eh, you know, Jesus has to come back to make it work anyway, so why try? Now, some of you right now are fighting me. You're ready to just argue with me because, man, that's not true. Guys, look at the majority of evangelicalism. It is true, and we have to face up to it. Here's a great example. The environment. I am not politically liberal. But when I look at Scripture, I see that the earth we have, yes, it will be remade, but we have work to do in order to steward it to get it to that point traditionally in the premillennial view, this is what I hear. It's all going to burn anyway. Who needs to recycle? <laughs> now, you might be j- laughing and going, oh, well, that's dumb. Who actually says that? I've heard that from so many premillennial pastors. Who needs to recycle all the hundreds of water bottles we use at a barbecue? Just throw it in the trash anyway. It's all going to burn. Our view of eternity affects the way We live. Why should I give my money to some, you know, third, third world country that's just going to misuse it and, you know, it's not going to get to the people? Well, that's not a good reason to not be generous. Go through organizations that do it right. But we don't live this way often as premillennialists. But what we see here is something a bit different. We see work being done. Look at verse 5 strangers, meaning Gentiles, shall stand and tend your flocks, Jews. He's starting to discuss this picture of Jews and Gentiles working together, which as we saw last week, is a picture of the church reconciled together and reconciled to God. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. At some point in the midst of the church, something has now happened where Jews that are followers of the Messiah and Gentiles that are followers of the Messiah are working together. And what this has brought about is the fullness of what, Jesus, uh, what God called the Jews to be in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, starting in verse 5, he said to the Jews, to the Hebrews, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If you look at the New Testament, these are the words and the the phrases that God uses about the church, Jews and Gentiles together acting in the kingdom work of following the Messiah. Through the work of the Anointed One, the Messiah, God has begun the kingdom in its first stage of moving outward to the world. And it is in this stage that we are in right now, the age of the church, that his focus is on salvation and bringing about a reflection of the Father through his church. In Isaiah 61-2, he said, I'm going to go about proclaiming or preaching the year of the Lord's favor. The reason for this is because that what is supposed to be happening right now through Christ is that God has reconciled us to him and to one another. And we, rather than focusing on ourselves and our own opinions and our own emotions and our own views, we're supposed to lay it all down in order to unite, to be about the work of the kingdom. And the reason that I know that some of us don't get this is honestly, some of us are just bored right now. You're wondering why you're even here. You're checking your watch. You're going, oh man, this is so academic. Where's the spirit? Guys, this is the word of God. This is calling us to obedience. Because guess what? Jesus works through visions and dreams, but his primary way and method of reaching the world is through who? The church. And thank God that it's not the day of vengeance yet, because what that allows us to do is to take the salvation message of Jesus to the nations. You see, this is why he says in John chapter three. This is John three sixteen through twenty one. Jesus says to Nicodemus, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, the Messiah, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life." For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This morning, I want you to grasp what Christ the Messiah has accomplished for you. I know that there are people in here who are non-believers. By his death on the cross a death he did not deserve, Jesus paid the price for everything you and I have done. All of our rebellion against the creator who made us, all of the burden of hurt that we have done to others and that has been done to us, and at our fingertips because of his grace, his forgiveness for all things. The year of Jubilee, the freedom from that sin and death is at hand. All that remains is for you to turn and accept that he died that your sin might be forgiven and to follow him as his disciple. He resurrected so that you would have assurance that your sin and death has no power over you anymore. And he ascended to the throne of heaven to reign over a kingdom into which he is inviting you to live, not in the future, right now. Please look into the face of Jesus and see what this Messiah has done, that he has brought the year of the Lord's favor to us and recognize that he is the answer to all that you've ever desired. I beg of you, those of you who may not follow him today, I beg of you to bow the knee to the Messiah, the King, to follow him and accept the good news of all that he's done. At the end of the service during worship, I'll be in the back and I would love to talk with you about what that looks like. Come back and talk with me if you are a person who goes, you know, I've been holding this law long enough. This is truth and I need to follow it. Well, at the end of days, Jesus will return to bring about that day of vengeance of our God. And trust me, you do not want to be on the opposing side on that day. But until then, we are in the midst of his inaugurated kingdom in the midst of the church. And so the last thing that we see here in Isaiah 61 is this. The citizens of the kingdom will grow in the covenant love of God until his return. The citizens of the kingdom will grow in the covenant love of God until his return. Over and over and over throughout the last year, we have been reminded that we serve a covenant God who calls his people to be in covenant with him and with one another. And he makes us the institution that governs and watches over the covenant of marriage. Do you think covenant is important to our God? And at the heart of covenant is this topic called faithfulness. That's why a faithful husband holds to the covenant of his marriage. We are to be people of faith, in fact, full of faith. People faithful to the covenant, to Christ and to one another. And so now in verses 8 and 9, we're going to see this continuation, but let's, uh, let's go back there and uh, finish verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice, mishpat. I hate robbery and wrong. Now, there could be a correction here to the Hebrews. Some of you have a note in it where it says it could read robbery with a burnt offering. I would agree more so with that definition because what he's stating to them is it is unjust for you to go proclaim that you're going to take hold of the sacrifice of God and then go about living your life the way you want. God views that as robbery. So he says, I love justice. I hate this view of robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. It's the new covenant that we follow as Christians. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the offspring of the Lord, and they are blessed." We, the local and global church, should be known as the offspring of the Messiah in the midst of the peoples, operating in everlasting covenant with God and with one another, bringing justice to the world around us just as he taught us to. And Isaiah continues on this emphasis of covenant love between God and his people by using imagery of a wedding. Take a look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall, shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Do you think God is interested in covenant relationship? He's talking about his people here. There's a great book years ago that was entitled Stop Dating the Church. if my daughter brought home a boy and he was like, yeah, you know, I really want relationship with your daughter, but I'm not into any kind of formal covenantal responsibility, what would I do to him? (laughs) Tell me, what would I do to him? We can't say that in church. You're right. But every Sunday across the world, people wander into the bride of Christ and say, give me the goodies, but I don't want any of the covenant responsibility. Stop dating the church. God is about covenant responsibility. We know as New Testament believers that this is speaking of the covenant love of Christ and his church. And in the midst of this covenant love that characterizes Christ's church, the seed of the gospel will spring forth and grow amazing fruit in the midst of his people. Look at verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. If we engage in this work of operating as a kingdom people, united by the Spirit, reflecting the character and heart of Jesus to one another in the world around us, we will see the kingdom promise of Isaiah 60 and 62. Let's even just look at Isaiah 62.1. For Zion's sake, that monument that I believe is speaking of the church, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, again, Revelation calls the church, the saved of Christ, the new Jerusalem. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Dear flock, as we move forward this year, my prayer for us as a church and our leadership's prayer for us as a church. What we've been praying for uh, for months is that we apply what we've learned in Isaiah. That we understand that we are to be this glimpse of Messiah's kingdom for the cities of Salem and Kaiser and Monmouth and Dallas and Independence and everywhere else. I firmly believe that we are not to be a group of autonomous people who silo our relationships with Jesus away from our relationship with one another. In other words, my relationship with Jesus is between me and him and my relationship with the church is separate. Guys, they go one in the same. To accomplish what Christ calls us to, they must go hand in hand. For us to be the bright shining light we are called to be in the world Three people are much better than one. I also believe it is important to look for the imminent return of the king. But if that looking makes us calloused and apathetic to the wounds of those around us, my question for you is what kind of king do you think you're looking for? Do you think he'll be pleased that we're calloused to the work of justice in this world? I firmly believe that speaking the gospel that Christ has saved someone is good and necessary. But if we do not have a community built that evidences the kingdom into which we are calling that person, how long do you think their event their decision of following Christ will last in the chaos of this world? And lastly, I firmly believe that individual action towards justice is good, but how much more powerful could church-wide, united action, united by the Spirit, be in the midst of this world? My rally cry for us as a church today is that we would let Christ truly be our King and that we would unite together and be motivated by His covenant love for us and His desire to bring justice to the world. Let this section of Scripture remind us that eternity future does not begin with some far-off event that allows us to live however we want right now, but rather it began with Christ. Today, in your presence, this has happened, he said. It began with Christ. And we are now in the midst of that inaugurated kingdom, and he is either your king or he is not. And because of that, we must stop trying to go it alone, independent from one another. This morning, I beg of you to catch the vision that we will determine to unite as covenant citizens of his kingdom and to take that kingdom as salt and light to the world around us. You see, what we view as the eternal purpose of God drives how we live our lives today. Let's stand together and let's make some of these professions known of what we believe as a church Church, how can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So even though we are guilty of having disobeyed God and are still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. Church, where is Christ now? Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day, after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. Church, what are we to be? God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends his community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another.